I'm Steve Gardner, uh, uh, director of the McBride Center for International Business and, and chair of the economics department here at Baylor. And uh, for those of you who have not already been here uh, for uh, sessions uh, last night and the, the previous two days, uh, welcome to our, our annual Global Business Forum at Baylor uh, this year on the, the subject of, uh, of international issues in, in health care. Uh, every year in, in the spring, we have Global Business Forum on some important subject in, in global business. Last year, it was about the global financial crisis. Uh, the year before that, about uh, the rise of China in the world economy. About six months ago, when uh, Joe McKinney and I were brainstorming about uh, what might be a big topic around this time, we thought, well, maybe health care. And, and uh, we seem to have gotten pretty close. Uh, but uh, always, when, when we do these, we, we try to look at the, the international aspects of things. And so you'll see that all through the day, we'll be looking at, at health care through a number of different lenses, uh, international comparisons, public health issues, and international trade, and health products, and all sorts of things like that. So uh, as your schedules allow it, hope you'll uh, just any time today that your schedule allows Come back to this room, and we'll be happy to see you here. So this first session uh, is about international comparisons of healthcare systems, and we have uh, two speakers with us who have spent a lot of time uh, writing and thinking about this subject. Uh, our first speaker will be jo Dr. Joe White, who's director of the Center for Policy Studies at Case Western Reserve University, where he's also the Luxembourg Family Professor of Public Policy and Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Chair of the Political Science Department. I can... Uh, it's nice to get away. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, since I am currently sort of uh, wearing these, these double hats of international business and, and Chair of Economics, I, I can uh, commiserate with uh, Dr. White sometime today about uh, uh, doing all those things. Uh, completed his undergraduate education at the University of Chicago and his master's and doctoral degrees in political science at, at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, another thing that the, the two of us have uh, in common. I'm also a, a Cal Berkeley PhD. So uh, anyway, I will, uh, our, our other speaker will be Jim Henderson. I'll introduce him to you in a few, in, in a few minutes. But first, please uh, welcome Joe White. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, welcome. And uh, <coughs> if I cough occasionally, I picked up something on the plane. It was a long plane flight and a bunch of plane flights, bus, bus rides. I mean, you've, you've probably all been in the Houston airport. It's very large. Uh, I think it's larger than the entire uh, east side of Cleveland, actually. Um, my, my goal today is to talk about uh, healthcare systems in uh, what used to be called first world countries. I guess you could still call them first world, it's just we don't know what the rest of the world is called. And um, basically the rich democracies of the world. Uh, and from really provide a perspective uh, that's relevant to two questions. A, what it's like to be a worker, and B, what it's like to be an employer, to run a business. Um, <coughs> and I'll just do an overview, a mostly descriptive overview of important things to think about. Uh, the first thing is that in any country, healthcare, uh, any developed country, healthcare is largely financed through systems of shared savings. Uh, groups of people get together, put their money into a pool, and then it is taken, and most of healthcare is 
paid for by taking money out of the pool uh, for those people who happen to be sick. Uh, in other words, you could think of this as a form of insurance, but sometimes it's tax contributions to a um, national health service, as in the UK, or to a county health service, as in Sweden or Denmark. Um, but this is true, just as true in the United States as it is in, in most other countries. You know, most people are not paying for health care out of pocket. Uh, because people do not want to take the risk of not being able to pay for their health care out of pocket. And what <coughs> differs among countries is how the risk is pooled, who's in, in these groups, how the money is collected, or for that matter, uh, how the risk is divided uh, you know, into what kinds of different pools uh, rather than the principle of pooling. And the second thing that's true uh, in virtually any country is that uh, most of health care is paid for in pools where there is some subsidy from higher income people to lower income people. And again, that's even true in the United States, I think. Uh, we, there's a sort of theological argument among economists, although a lot of economists don't even ask themselves the question as to what is actually going on within employers. But in American employers, they are basically required to give the same health insurance benefits to, uh, to em full-time employees of very different income levels. And uh, that's basically required by federal law if you're going to, to do these benefits. And that means, I think, that there is, in fact, a, even within the average employer, a transfer, a subsidy within the employment pool from higher income workers to lower income workers. Because I don't really believe that the $25,000 income person with a $15,000 uh, health insurance benefit uh, and the uh, $100,000 income person with a $15,000 health insurance benefit would, would actually get the same amount of cash if there were no health insurance benefit and if it were paid as, as, uh, as, as just wages. Um, and the fact that federal law says you have to give the same benefits to everybody basically suggests that somebody else didn't think so either. Uh, so the second question is how do the subsidies work to make health care affordable for lower income people? And the third question is how a cost, you know, what, what are the ways in which costs are limited uh, to keep costs from going totally out of control, which they have a tendency to do, particularly in the United States. And that's particularly the case if you're pooling the, pooling the money so people aren't paying out of pocket. Uh, and, and there is roughly an international standard of what other countries except us do. Uh, one is near universal coverage, certainly among citizens. In some way, very complicated in some case, but basically <coughs> the coverage is associated with contributions being roughly proportional to income. You may be paying uh, just a regular the tax code through general revenues, and general revenues just about everywhere end up being roughly proportional to income. They are not really uh, tremendously progressive anywhere. Um, secondly, uh, a lot of systems you just pay for what are called sickness fund systems, something uh, resembling a social security tax, a percentage of payroll. Um, it's just a flat percentage of payroll. It tends to be a little regressive because it only goes up to a certain amount of wages and then people with wages above that are not taxed for their wages above the threshold. So it's a little regressive, but it's still roughly in proportion to income. Of course, consumption is certainly determined by need uh, in, in other countries. Uh, again, mostly in the US, but not as much because there are a lot of people who don't have insurance in the U.S. and there's more variations in what the insurance covers in the U.S. But in any system there are some inequalities and some modest variations. They include uh, cost sharing, 
Uh, if there was cost sharing where you, you say pay 20% of the cost you know, out of your own pocket, then people who have less money are likely to consume less. Uh, geography, rural areas do not have the same, the same health care as urban areas and so on. Really urban areas may not have very good health care. Uh, you know, the ghetto may not have very good health care either. Social status, I mean, if you, if you know how to talk to a doctor and you seem more like the doctor's sort of social group, you're probably likely to get better communication with the doctor. Um, uncovered benefits, you know, obviously in any system there are benefits <coughs> that aren't covered. <laughs> covered. And there's usually some sort of escape hatch or safety valve for the well-to-do if they want to, you know, really get really nice, you know, have a private room or whatever. Cost control generally works basically by substantial coordination of the power of the payer side. Uh, rather than in the United States where all the individual payers are sort of fending for themselves, in some way or another, the payment rules are coordinated so that the payers are all, even if there's many of them, are roughly paying under the same rules and essentially are brought together to negotiate or simply the government sets the rules <laughs> as to the payment. Uh, and so the concentrated power on the payer side is a, is a large aspect of any system. That could be in the case of a, of a national health service system like the UK, just that the government is, is the payer and runs the system directly. It could be in Canada where, say, the province of Ontario or Quebec will set the rules for paying the hospitals and, and doctors, and, and the doctors can't play off payers against each other because there's only one payer. It could be, like in Germany, uh, where um, the uh, payers all get together, and they're organized together, and in Switzerland, to uh, negotiate as a group. Um, it could be in Japan, where they've got tons of insurers, but the government just has the fees anyway. But you, what you, the big difference in cost control approaches between other countries in the United States is in other countries you have some sort of coordination of the payment on the, on the payer side to deal with the insurers, even if there's multiple, uh, to deal with the providers, even if there's multiple insurers, as there are in many countries. Um, <coughs> one other thing is, although there's been talk about changing this in a little in Switzerland and Germany, sort of, maybe, which you will probably hear about in a few minutes, uh, the Netherlands, um, <coughs> generally other country systems do not have different pools of providers where depending on the insurance you have, you get to go to different doctors. That generally has not been done. There's a lot of talk about doing it, but it generally has not been done because, in general, the insurers do not have the power to, if they negotiate with a certain pool of providers, to get better deals from them. And if they do, it has to be such a narrow pool of providers that the uh, people who get to choose among insurers don't want to choose the insurer with the narrow pool of providers. So that's a big difference uh, from the standpoint of living in the system is that basically, if you, however you're insured, you can go to whichever provider you choose within limits. Uh, the one exception to that is systems where you have strong gatekeeping, where you have to be, where your primary care physician has to clear you to go to specialists or to the hospital. <coughs> but <coughs> the United States, you get insurance and your insurance determines who you can go see, or at least uh, who you can go see at the standard terms. You might you know, pay a penalty and go see, see uh, physicians or hospitals that are outside of the network. Another big difference is the employer role. Uh, first of all, where you ha you know, in some systems, the employers just aren't involved at all, like in Canada or in the UK, uh, except to provide supplemental you know, gap benefits. Uh, you know, in Canada, basically, a lot of, uh, there isn't that much prescription drug coverage in the main system, so employers will provide a lot of that. 
but the employers are not particularly involved in the rest of the system at all. They're not paying for the insurance or anything. Same in, in the UK or in Sweden or whatever. Um, <coughs> in another kind of system, which we call Bismarck systems, because uh, Germany was the first one to do this, um, uh, Bismarck was the first one to do this, it's been around a while, um, where you have uh, separate insurers, um, and then the employment is the basis for which insurance you're in. Uh, so you, so and in some cases, your insurance is actually a company fund. Uh, you know, Demler-Benz, I think, probably has a company fund. Uh, but you're, um, even in that situation, the employer individually is not negotiating with the providers to figure out the terms in terms of uh, how much you pay for each service. Uh, the employers are not managing or responsible for managing cost control in a way that they are in the United States. Uh, as I said, basically, uh, <coughs> you know, in those other in, in other countries, even if there are multiple uh, insurers, even if an insurer is actually an employer um, providing uh, coverage directly to its employees, it is coordinating with the other payers to manage the system rather than trying on its own to manage the system by bargaining for the best deal it can get with different providers. And the last big difference is that in other systems, there's much less room for entrepreneurship by providers for, uh, you know, the, the cardiac specialist in a hospital to go find somebody in the financial markets who say, you know, we'll, we'll lend you money to build a cardiac hospital, a specialty cardiac hospital, uh, and uh, then the, cardi the cardiology practice goes to the hospital administrator and says, well, we're going to do this unless you build for us the following uh, extra equipment and, by the way, give us the following concessions on fees. You know, the sort of level of entrepreneurship by providers is much less in most other countries. Not that they can't get pretty entrepreneurial, but there's simply limits on what they can get capital to do and limits on what they can get license to do. So it's uh, the business opportunities are reduced uh, if you're thinking of financing providers. Um, <coughs> what are the implications of this? If you are a worker compared to the U.S., one, you don't have to worry much about being covered. Two, it is a much less confusing system to operate in. Again, regardless of what the system is, uh, whether it's Sweden or Germany or Canada or the UK or whatever, it's less confusing because, again, you, you don't have to worry in the same way about who's in the network as to you know, what you're covered with. I mean, I was faced at one point with a choice between three options. One was a really expensive option. Uh, the other was a network that uh, included University Hospitals of Cleveland, really big, wonderful hospital system, number four ranked uh, children's hospital in the, in the country, um, um, but not a great cardiac practice. <coughs> and the other was a system built around the Cleveland Clinic, great cardiac practice, but not the number four ranked children's hospital in the country. Well, we're family. I got a kid, I got me. I got cardiac issues, <laughs> had to choose or pay a, a lot extra. Uh, for, for a system that had both. Those kinds of choices don't exist in the same ways in other countries. Some systems do have gatekeeping primary care providers, and so are restrictive in that way, much more like a real HMO here. Others don't. Uh, in, the US, in the U.S. model, if you work for a big company, uh, you generally have three or four choices, and that sort of intermediate thing doesn't exist in the same way in other countries. You either have no choice about your insurance, like in Quebec or, or France, um, or Japan, or you have a bunch of choices, more like the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program, or what is being planned for uh, small groups and individuals in the United States under the current new legislation. 
In most cases, the out-of-pocket payment is highly likely to be lower. The only exception might be Switzerland, but I think the actual out-of-pocket payment uh, that most people end up paying ends up being lower in Switzerland simply because costs are lower. So even though it's a higher percentage, it, it's, it's lower uh, on, you know, in total. But I'm not sure of that. It is, there's, the numbers aren't, aren't great. Um, but in general, <coughs> uh, coverage tends to be a little more generous than the U.S. norm in terms of what's covered. Uh, if, it is, if it is less generous, like in France, uh, almost everyone has what I would call gap insurance, the equivalent of Medigap uh, in the United States. And again, while cost sharing could be high, the prices are so much lower that the out-of-pocket is generally lower. Um, Jerry Anderson, I think, put, put out some, up some numbers yesterday. I'm not sure which one things he covered. But in general, people go to the doctor and the hospital more often. <coughs> In some countries, access to specialist and elective procedures is worse than for well-insured Americans, although better than for not-so-well-insured Americans. And there are internal inequalities for all the reasons I, asked, I, I mentioned. I mean, some of these things like geography and social status are going to exist everywhere. What's it like if you're a firm manager? Well, one, um, <coughs> in those countries which have <coughs> national health services, you know, England or county health services, Sweden, Denmark, whatever. Um, it's not your business, except to the extent you're providing some, some, some supplemental benefits. Now, more and more, uh, individual supplemental insurance is actually being replaced by employer-based supplemental insurance because employers uh, are just such a much, much better basis for pooling risk even for supplemental coverage and for marketing. And so uh, you know, people who think there's something unnatural about the employer-based system in the United States aren't really looking at, 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 at how markets actually work. There are really good reasons why you would sell through employers. Um, but nevertheless, it's just not as big a deal if you're an employer in those systems. And even in what I've called the Bismarck systems, uh, where the employer is, say, required to pay half of the, half of the premium and the, uh, you know, uh, and the employees pays half the premium, and it's a percentage of income, so it's essentially a payroll tax, and there's worries that this raises the cost of labor and so on. Because uh, when you hire somebody, you're not just obligated to pay their wages, you're obligated to pay their health care and their pensions, et cetera, et cetera. It's an expense, but you're, <coughs> you're not really expected to manage it, and it's much lower. Um, and there's sort of, again, there's theological arguments about how much lower it really is because by one economic analysis, um, actually healthcare benefits don't cost employers anything because uh, employers are willing to pay a certain amount of compensation and if they just pay less in healthcare, if pay more in healthcare benefits then they're just paying less in wages and it doesn't really matter and the only people who don't really believe this are employers and employees. Um, uh, but you will find a great deal of uh, commentary that says it's absolutely true or at least 80% true. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, let the, you know, G German employers say that the extra, the, the required, pen again, not just health care, but pension and so on, contributions make it harder to hire and so on, and so they don't believe it either, uh, just like American employers don't believe it. Uh, but it's still just much less of an expense. Um, so that's the basic difference, and I guess the logical question is, what does the new legislation do? Does it move us towards the international standard? And just a few comments on that. One is, <coughs> if you are currently working for a company that provides insurance, a large company with more than 50, more than 50 workers, it doesn't change much of anything. It really doesn't. Um, <coughs> and so it doesn't move you much towards anything. Um, 
Uh, it sort of, from the standpoint of workers, goes part of the way towards the international standard in risk policy and subsidization in the following ways. There is still not quite as much protection <coughs> or equality as in other countries. First of all, it's a real two-tier system unlike in other countries. A bunch of the expansion is in Medicaid. Medicaid is not the same as health insurance for everybody else. Because of the rates it pays, uh, you have restricted networks in a lot of places. Um, you have trouble getting access. It's a real two-tier system. Now, there's things on which, and at least in a lot of states, it's not that bad. Um, I mean, I think a very large portion of babies in the United States are born through Medicaid, paid for by Medicaid. <coughs> Of, of deliveries are paid for by Medicaid. Medicaid payments to the hospitals for that tend to be, at least the hospitals take it. <laughs> they, they appear happy to have it. But that's one thing. The second thing is there's, more of, there's still a real two-tier system where some people won't be in the same insurance as other people. Uh, a second thing is you, you still will have all the differences in networks. Um, you're, you're getting insurance even if you're buying through these new exchanges and these, uh, as an individual or small group, you're still choosing different among a bunch of different insurers with different networks, and Lord knows what you, you know, who you can go to. The third is that uh, <coughs> it's simply not universal, right? There's going to be, still going to be some uninsured people. A, th a fourth thing is it does a bit to simplify the choice of insurance, but not much. And uh, it would be interesting to compare to the Swiss system, which is the most complicated uh, uh, one, and the Professor Henderson <coughs> is going to talk about a bit. But just you know, a couple of things. In Switzerland, you have a choice between four types of insurance, roughly, I think. And in the, and in the, and in the Senate bill, for the people who are not in the big employers, they're going to have a choice between four levels of insurance. And the levels are determined, are defined in terms of their level of benefits, um, uh, what, what their actuarial value is, what proportion of your projected costs are covered uh, under these plans. But by defining it that way, that means they don't define the benefits. You want to be an 80% plan? There's a whole bunch of ways to be an 80% plan. So there will be a great deal of variation among plans. You're not simply choosing among four defined benefit packages. You're just sort of levels of benefit packages. So there's going to be a lot more variation in plans. Uh, the <laughs> low end is distinctly lower in terms of coverage, as far as I can figure out, than what Switzerland uh, is, 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 than the Swiss rules. The, um, it's this, there are, as in Switzerland, for these people going to be subsidies based on their income, but it gets much more complicated because there's also going to be subsidies because the insurance is going to be based on, uh, the subsidy based on income is going to be for, I think, the second level of insurance. I think that's called silver plans or something. Uh, and, uh, but they know that, that that's only paying for, is it 70 or 75 percent of of actuarial value, so, so there's going to be a lot of people who can't afford that, so they're going to get separate subsidies for cost sharing, so they don't pay the cost sharing in the, in the silver plans, so there's going to be a, a second set of subsidies that's going to have to be somehow implemented. Um, <coughs> there's going to be much more variation among the plans, there's going to be much more complication about the subsidies, uh, there's going to be, uh, the, the regulatory structure is much less clear, and so it's going to be Relative to people who are buying, you know, in small groups or individuals who are buying insurance now in the U.S., it's going to be simpler than that. It's going to be more standardized than that, but it's still going to be much more complicated than, than even in Switzerland. Um, 
For employees of larger firms, the major effect <coughs> is that this will give them a backup. They will be less likely to lose insurance for two reasons. Uh, one is that because there will be penalties on larger firms for dropping insurance, the economic calculation about whether to drop insurance will be different. Right? And in, in other words, instead of, well, if I drop insurance, we can make, uh, we can save $500 per employee, that won't work because then the penalty is bigger than $500, so they won't drop the insurance. Um, but if they can save enough, they'll still drop the insurance. Uh, um, so you don't have to worry as much about your employer dropping insurance. But the second thing is you have some place to go if you either your employer drops insurance or uh, you lose your job or whatever. I mean, if you are in a different situation, you can go to, um, you know, if you lose your job, you can still go through the exchanges and, and purchase through this new, new structure. What does it mean for employers? Um, well, it doesn't do much, if anything, it doesn't do anything to control costs, really, for the large employers. It just doesn't. There's some dreams that maybe it will in the long run, but it doesn't for two main reasons. A, the employers didn't argue for it, and B, the providers didn't argue for it. Uh, there really was very little lobbying that I could see by the employers to get cost controls out of this, out of this process. I talked to some people from them, and I, you know, but they were sort of absent. They would criticize the bill for not controlling costs, but they didn't appear to be lobbying for any cost controls that would actually work. Um, <coughs> there, it'll be harder, the, the, the calculation for larger employers about just dropping coverage will be, will be, will be they'll be less likely to drop coverage. But again, most of them weren't planning on dropping coverage anyway, so that doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, for smallest employers, there will be some smaller employers who are better off dropping coverage and paying the penalty because, because the, the, the market for small employers buying insurance is so horrible and inefficient and, and, and that they'd be better off paying the penalty and buying their insurance through the exchange. And of course, in some cases, uh, the employers themselves will choose to buy the insurance through the exchange. and they, They'll simply be better off on average uh, if they had decent coverage to begin with. Um, the large employers are still left in this ridiculous bargaining position of they have to deal with the providers. And I think it's important to, to, to they are sort of, essentially what's going on is the providers in most markets are quite concentrated. Uh, if you're in Cleveland, there's the clinic, there's university hospitals. And the insurers are basically pass-throughs. Yeah, they're concentrated too. But the insurer has to choose between getting in a fight with the clinic or university hospitals on one hand and simply trying to pass on the clinic or university hospitals' prices to all these separate employers on the one hand, on the other hand. And if it, if it angers one employer, it loses that one employer. Right? But if it angers the clinic, it loses a whole bunch of business <laughs> because the, all these people who will not join a system with just, without the clinic. So... Um, you're still in this in the situation where uh, the employers, uh, particularly the large employers, are still left in the situation where uh, they are bargaining over cost control with the providers, and the providers have the upper hand because of the structure of the market. And that's not changing. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor White. I think you've, uh, let's see, we're 20 or so minutes into the conference, and I think you've, you've already learned more about the system than you've learned in a year on CNN. And so uh, 
let me get uh, uh, Jim Henderson queued up here. Our next speaker is, is Dr. James Henderson, who's Ben Williams Professor of Economics right here at Baylor University. He's also Academic Director of the MBA program uh, in Healthcare Administration. Uh, BBA from the University of Houston, uh, his graduate degrees from Southern Methodist University. Uh, Jim is one of my favorite uh, discussion and debate uh, partners here in the, in the department. I always figure that if, uh, if Jim and I can agree on something, it must be true. <clears throat> Thanks, Steve. Um, I thought I'd <clears throat> move right into uh, thinking a little bit about why it's <clears throat> we can uh, uh, see that uh, the motivation for uh, why we worry about international healthcare systems. I think we've we do have obviously the the momentum uh, for reform here, and and we're we're looking for. Uh, reasonable models of reform. Uh, I, I personally feel like that uh, the, the debate over health care reform in this country is not over, it's just beginning. Uh, because uh, as uh, Dr. Michael Stanley and I were talking before the, the session this morning, uh, <clears throat> we just have a framework and all the rules of implementation haven't been written yet. Uh, and we'll be looking to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Nancy Sebelius, uh, to write those for us. So uh, she ends up being a very important person, maybe, maybe one of the most powerful persons uh, in this country today. So uh, she's, she's, uh, it's going to be interesting anyway. Uh, and as I said, the debate <clears throat> is far from over. <clears throat> and there are a lot of things we can learn from other countries. And uh, before, we, before we move too much further, I thought I'd talk a little bit about, I, those of you, may, many of you may have, have seen the movie, uh, the PBS movie um, on, uh, what was it? Uh, Sick, around Sick Around the World. The world. Uh, sort of a highbrow version of uh, uh, Michael Moore's Sicko. Uh, and uh, with, with, some, with some of the same um, uh, irritants that uh, I found in Michael Moore's movie. Uh, when, right away, we, they talked about the U.S. system being 37th in the world. Um, it's real interesting that that's based on a WHO, World Health Organization, report in 2000. There were actually two ratings in that report. Uh, one of them was uh, performance and one of them was attainment. The performance rating is sort of a theoretical. It has how you're performing relative to, to uh, uh, how well you could be doing, and that's the one we rank 37th on. The, uh, the actual attainment ranking, uh, we came in 15th. Uh, which, you know, maybe may no big whoopee uh, in, in many of your eyes being 15th uh, as opposed to being 37th. But what was interesting about it is the confidence intervals in terms of the rankings. There were only two countries that fell outside our confidence intervals, uh, and that means there, that there was only a statistically significant difference in the ranking, uh, meaning only two countries came out better than we, did, we were. One of them was uh, Norway and the other was Japan. Uh, so, you know, th this particular uh, uh, ranking is fraught with all sorts of problems, and which, which we don't have any time really to get into right now. So the first thing is when people talk about the U.S. being 37th uh, in the world, you know, take that with a grain of salt. That's a, that's a study based on a study that 
uh, uh, we probably could could do a lot better than that. And 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 I always tell my students that there's enough. We've got enough criticism out there of the U.S. system that is legitimate. Let's criticize what what we can, what's legitimately criticizable. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm real big on uh, on on fixing what's what's broken here. Um, the second thing they said in there was about that over half the bankruptcies in the United States are caused by medical problems. Well, this is uh, based on a study by Himmelstein. Uh, Steffi Woolander and a couple of others. It was in Health Affairs in 2005. And what they actually said in that article was that uh, medical problems were a contributing factor in 54.5% of all bankruptcies. Uh, a subsequent study by Drainoff and, and Millinson suggests that that number is really more like 17% when you correct the, the methodology. And in fact, there are a number of peer reviewed academic studies. Uh, that have used uh, uh, different data and looked at this, and they come up with numbers that are even much smaller than this. But the Himmelstein article said even the solidly uh, middle-class Americans are at risk. Uh, the uh, average income of the people who were declaring bankruptcy in their study was, 20, uh, was family income of $25,000 a year. And I would contend that uh, if you have an income of $25,000 a year, you are not solidly middle class. You are barely above poverty level. So, uh, you know, it, it, just be careful how you use uh, uh, research reports that are out there. These guys didn't use multivariate analysis, you know. They didn't consider endogeneity. So there's a lot of problems with, with the uh, Himmelstein article. And, uh, you know, it's just another one of those things when people start throwing that one around. You know, there is an issue here. And people that are in this, this range, barely above poverty, they get sick. There is a chance, a, probably a much higher chance for them than for people who are solidly middle class. So, uh, the, you know, I'm just saying I don't, I'm not real big on trying to use scare tactics to, to, uh, to get a point across. Um, also said that the U.S. infant mortality rate was, was the highest and uh, they have, we have the lowest life expectancies among developed countries. And, uh, you know, while you can't argue that, the question is how relevant is the, is the statement. And what I've got up here first is, is looking at infant mortality rates. It's not real big, but if you see the numbers, you can tell that the United States is uh, 6.7 uh, infant deaths per 1,000 live births, and which is higher than, than any of the countries that I compare with. I usually use Canada, France, Germany, uh, Japan, Switzerland, the United Kingdom to compare us with. I think the relevant number, if you want to think about uh, infant deaths, is not infant mortality rates but perinatal mortality rates because what that does, it takes, it takes out of the analysis how you define a live birth. Uh, and uh, uh, many countries define live births differently than we do, but they can't, you can't monkey with the data when you're thinking perinatal mortality. And you can see, if you can, if you have, depending on how good your eyes are, uh, that uh, for France, for example, that has a 3.8 per thousand infant mortality rate, has an 11.2 perinatal mortality rate, uh, which is much higher than ours. The way we define infant deaths, our infant mortality rate and our perinatal mortality rate are virtually the same. Uh, so we're not, you know, those babies that that live for 12 hours are counted as infant deaths, not uh, perinatal deaths. Um, 
Life expectancies, uh, yeah, are both male and female life expectancies are lower in the United States. The last column over there, though, that I like to think about is the external causes of death. Usually, we're not talking quality of life issue here. Uh, usually when we think about uh, th talking about uh, life expectancies in, in a health care system, and usually when people bring this up, they're saying, well, our health care system is so lousy, look at our life expectancies. Well, I, I would argue that you, you, if you're going to use uh, some measure of life expectancy to evaluate a health care system, you've got to be fair and factor out all the deaths that have nothing to do with health care. You know, a guy puts a shotgun in his mouth and blows his brains out, the health care system's not going to be able to do anything about that, okay? So you take out external causes, and the external causes typically that you would think about would be suicide, homicide, uh, motor vehicular accidents, accidental falls, things like that. And we're much higher than other countries. If you uh, re adjust life expectancies for external causes of death, factor out the differences between the U.S. and Europe, uh, the gap between life expectancy is cut in about half. So they still are a little better than we are, but that's the, that's the European average, and we actually come up with higher life expectancies than several of the countries that beat us in this chart here when you, when you make those adjustments. Um, the average administrative costs of the U.S. Um, um, are over 20%. Uh, if you look at the at the numbers in the healthcare uh, uh, data, it's more like seven percent. Um, you know, not sure where they where they would get twenty two percent from. I I have an idea, but has to do with small group po uh, policies that are sold that are much higher administrative costs. Uh, also, say that the, in this in this study, say if you take the uh, profit out of health insurance, you go a long way to solving the healthcare problem. I went to Forbes and looked at uh, data on health the health insurance industry. Profits as a percent of revenues. It's about s anywhere from 2 to 10%. So even if you go on the high side and say 7%, um, then uh, the total profit in the, in the private insurance industry is about $50 billion. That's $50 billion in a, um, a system that's $2.5 trillion. Uh, you can take all the profit out of health care of the health insurance industry, and it's not going to go very far to solving our problem. Um, that's one of the big differences, and I'll just kind of diverge here just a second, and that is that um, other countries do not allow insurance companies, the ones that have private insurance companies, to make a profit. So in Switzerland, for example, uh, the, the private insurance industry that actually sells the insurance, it, the basic plan is a not-for-profit plan. These insurance companies, when they sell their supplemental policies, the gap policies that uh, Professor White was talking about, uh, they're for-profit. So they can make a profit on the supplemental, but they can't make a profit uh, on the basic plan. And I'm almost sure France is the same way. The, it's not-for-profit in the basic industry and for-profit in the supplemental policies. Is that, is that your understanding? It, it varies which in, supplemental policy yeah. you get, but the, uh, which kind of supplemental policy you get. But in France, the, unlike in Switzerland, the basic policy is not sold by a company that can then 
use having gotten in the door by selling you the basic policy to market their other policy. No, you're, What's you're happening right. in, in Switzerland is they get in the door on the one hand and they use that to help market their other policies and not just health supplemental policies. They, okay, now we, we're your insurer. Maybe you want to buy something else from us. Life and casualty and all the other kind of stuff they sell. Well, the... The, suddenly on, on, on Sunday, uh, I, was, I was in Chicago on Sunday through uh, Wednesday at the American College of Healthcare Executives annual meetings. Uh, quite interesting uh, situation emerging there with the president signing the legislation on Sunday. You can, as you can imagine, Monday morning, that was the uh, hot topic uh, of conversation. And, um, you know, it, we, we were, uh, I was, I was, I was in, uh, impressed by the fact that there was a great deal of divergence in, in opinion as to what the impact is going to be. Some people are very worried. Other people are very happy. Um, my impression was the, the more political you were either on either side of the argument, the more radical you were in terms of the, you, what you thought the impact was going to be. So there were some people there that were wildly giddy, saying that this is the, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to us. Other people at the other end of the spectrum were saying, you know, the sky's falling, you know, we're all going to, you know, to Hades. Uh, you, know, you know, this is so, the first step towards socialism, you know. So, but, you know, the people that were kind of in the middle were, were I think, had, had legitimate concerns. It's just a lot of unknowns, especially because really it's a framework. We see a lot in terms of what the, the uh, tax implications are going to be, but we really we don't even have any idea what the basic benefit package is going to look like. So there's going to be a minimum benefit package to be determined at a later date by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So as I said, she's going to be a pretty, pretty important person. Um, Professor White talked a little bit about the, the evolution of the German system starting in the late 19th century with uh, Chancellor Bismarck. Uh, creating uh, this uh, series of sickness funds. Right now, there are about 240 sickness funds. Uh, they, you, you get in your sickness fund either where you work, where you live, or, or who you work for. So there's a little bit different ways of getting into that. But these are insurance companies that are strictly controlled. Uh, and, there, and there are cost control measures built into the German system. Um, you know, as I said, you know, Sunday, suddenly, I, um, uh, I, I, before Sunday, Switzerland was my favorite system, and on Sunday, uh, it became Germany. So, uh, for different reasons, and, and uh, I'll mention why in a minute. Uh, the German system uh, has healthcare spending linked to the national income. So, healthcare spending cannot go up any faster than national income goes up. So that way, if you look at at a series of German healthcare spending relative to GDP, since about the late 70s, it's been fairly constant. Gone, you know, it's gone up a little bit. It's not like ours, where it's sort of, you know, gone up like that. It's kind of just got hung around 10%, back down to 9.8, 10.2, you know, it stays, it stays like that. So they've got this built-in mechanism to uh, control overall spending. Uh, and, the, and the way they do that, they have system-wide global budgets and binding fee schedules for, for physicians. And um, the fee schedules, there are actually three fee schedules. And this is what I like about the German system, is that if you make enough money, uh, you don't have to participate. Um, say, I'm sorry, I don't want to be in this system. Uh, I figure that if, uh, if Congress and congressional staff can opt out of our system, that I ought to be able to opt out of it, too. So, uh, you know, 
You may, and, and it's really kind of a low income level. It's it's maybe what fifty five, sixty thousand euros where you you don't have to participate anymore. It's at the threshold. What it, there is a as, as Professor White said, there's a threshold uh, as to uh, once once you reach that uh, income level. Uh, you don't have to pay any more, just like our Social Security level at, you, what is it, 106000 or something like that. You don't have to pay uh, any more into the system except for the Medicare part of it. But, but that's how they set it up. And if you also reach that income level, you can choose to opt into a totally private system. And what's interesting about that is about 10% of Germans pick the private system. Um, and the fee schedule for private uh, covered individuals, uh, doctors get more money uh, from them. So what that means is, uh, we're talking about tiered systems, I think Germany is a tiered system. You, you, you get private insurance, you get better service uh, because uh, you actually get uh, appointment times uh, and when you walk in the door, they know you're a private uh, insurance uh, recipient and they try to please you because they're getting more money for, for providing you the service. Uh, retirees and uh, the unemployed who get it, kind of sort of our Medicare, Medicaid group, the fee schedule is the lowest there and of course they'll get the worst service. So I think that based, they have a three-tiered system based on the fee schedule. That's it's just service. It, you know the quality of their care. One thing you've got. To, I, I think you need to really uh, take away from this is the quality of care in the countries that we typically think are our comparison countries is excellent. Uh, the UK system has a very sound primary care system. There are waiting lists in the UK for uh, specialty services, in particular what you would call non-emergent care maybe. Uh, some people use the term elective care. I don't, I, I don't particularly think that if you have uh, a blockage in your coronary artery that, that it's elective. You're going to have to get something done. But if, it's, if you're not actively involved in a myocardial infarction, you probably don't need the surgery today. You could wait got to be careful there uh, how long you wait and, and watch you know watchful waiting sometimes ends, means you end up having a heart attack and dying but uh, but you could it's non-emergency if it's an emergency you get it immediately okay so the key is is to have a little heart attack and get to the <laughs> hospital and then you're okay <laughs> now so anyway Funded with a, a payroll tax that ranges anywhere from 8 to 16 percent, uh, paid 50-50 between employer and employer, shared in some fashion. And as we all know, uh, yes, it's uh, uh, paid for uh, by the employee. Um, I like to talk about safety valves, and I think the, the German system has a safety valve. If you want to get buy-in, uh, from upper income people, you give them a way to, uh, to get better care. The German safety valve is private insurance. Uh, don't have much time to talk about Switzerland. I would like to say this about the Swiss system. Th what we see in the U.S. system is, has some similarities to the Swiss system, and the, the new U.S. system. It's mandatory participation at the individual level. The Swiss don't have an employer mandate because 
individuals have a mandate. They have to buy insurance, and, and people get insurance when they're, when they're born. And 99% of the Swiss have insurance. Um, about 40% of them purchase supplementary policies to get a little bit better service. And the subsidies go to individuals who have to spend more than about 8 to 10% of their income on medical care. Now, approximately 20% of the Swiss are, are um, uh, subsidized. I, it's real interesting. Wednesday, I noticed that in the, uh, the journal Health Affairs, on the online edition, there was a... Um, uh, a study that was that was uh, that uh, in there that <clears throat> that talked about uh, the fact that over the course of the of 2001 to 2006, the percentage of the U.S. population paying more than 10 percent on their health care had increased from 14.4 percent to 19.1 percent. Which, which, okay, that's important. 10%. You spend more than 10%. Today, 20, about approximately 20% of Americans are spending more than 10% of their income on medical care. Well, that's exactly the cutoff level where the Swiss uh, subsidize. And I would say the biggest difference that I see in what we're proposing to do and what and what uh, the Swiss do is we're going to we're proposing to subsidize a whole lot more people than what they do. Um, and so it depends on what you think, whether, whether people ought to, you know, is 8 to 10% reasonable to, to, and, and whether or not we think that that's kind of the number. I, th I think that the Swiss um, uh, safety valve is the opportunity to buy something along the lines of a consumer-directed health plan with different deductibles. Uh, you buy, you, you, you accept a higher deductible, you pay a lower premium, uh, and uh, as was discussed earlier, uh, there is selective contracting in the Swiss system because there is one HMO option, which is selective contracting. And, and interestingly enough, that option is becoming marginally more popular. Okay, So uh, there are people, even in Switzerland, that like the low premiums and opt into the, uh, the HMO coverage. So I think we need to... Shut it down, I, and that's about all I had to say anyway, so thanks for listening.